Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is for the Love of Film podcast, episode 9. Um, this is sort of the wrapping up the year 2017, the movies I saw between Christmas and New Year's Day. Um, I was going to do New Year's Eve, but I actually uh, saw a couple other uh, uh, films uh, yesterday. I'm recording this on December, or sorry, not December, January 2nd. 2018, um, and I saw two films uh, on uh, January 1st, 2018, one of them being Star Wars The Last Jedi a fifth time, which, you know, any rational person uh, would think that I was a huge fan of this film, having seen it five times in the theater, but uh, um, I only paid for it once. The second viewing of it was I had bought tickets in advance every other time people have taken me to see it, so... Because I don't love it uh, nearly as much as one might assume from having seen it five times in the theater. So anyway, uh, there's yeah. I won't even bother touching on the Last Jedi again in this. Um, but there were five other films I saw. One, the, the other one, the, the, there was another one that it was a repeat viewing for me, which was uh, Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water. I took a friend to see that. That was, uh, if you listen to our last episode, you know that uh, that was my favorite film of 2017. Just a beautiful film. And so I'm not really going to go into that as well. But um, the theater, one of the theaters near me, the Cinemagic, does a cult classic series. I believe it's the last Thursday of each month. They do an older film on the big screen. And so the last Thursday of the month, in December, I went to their cult classics and got to see Gremlins, Joe Dante's Gremlins, um, which I've seen many times before, and I love Gremlins. But this one was, this viewing was a kind of a special treat for me uh, because in the summer of 1984, when it came out, my friend Martin and I begged his mother to take us to to see it. Um, we really wanted to see it primarily because, you know, they market it towards kids with Gizmo, the Mogwai. Um, it's cute, fluffy little creature. Um, you know, this was the year after Return of the Jedi had come out. We were on a uh, an Ewok high still, and uh, you know, I think Gizmo sort of sort of uh, fell into that. Uh, similar enough. Um, but they didn't, they sort of downplayed in the marketing that it was a horror film. Now, albeit a comedic horror film, but to a couple eight and a half year olds, um, it scared the crap out of us. We didn't even see the film all the way through. Uh, honestly, it, it, having watched it many times since then and then seeing it again on the theater, in the theater on the big screen uh, last week, I think it was the point where the science teacher, the school science teacher, who's been attacked by the gremlin but has a has the syringe that he took drew blood from one of the mogwai from sticking out of his 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 buttocks as he was laying face down clearly dead i think that's that's the image that stuck with me and i was like oh man these things can kill you we were i, I don't remember if we were screaming but we were certainly uh, very vocal and uh you know Marty's mom took us out 
Um, and she, I posted about it on Facebook last week, and she reminded me that she actually asked for her money back, which um, was not uncommon with that film. Uh, and that was one of two 1984 films. Um, both of them, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, produced uh, by Steven Spielberg. Um, the other one actually being directed by Steven Spielberg, which was um, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Those were the two films that resulted in uh, the creation of the PG-13 rating. Um, so yeah, Gremlins and Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom uh, created the fourth, well, I guess fifth rating, because X rating is technically a uh, Motion Picture Association of America rating. Um, if anyone's listening um, and wants to chime in, uh, if you know what the first theatrically released PG-13 movie was as a result of that, uh, you can leave it in the comments for this episode, either on Facebook or Instagram. No fair looking it up online. Um, it was, uh, you know, it came out, I believe, the following year. But, um, yeah. So, seeing Gremlins on the big screen in its entirety for the first time at 42 years old was certainly an adventure. Um, you know, and it is a Christmas... It, it takes place around Christmas time. Uh, not really a Christmas movie per se. Um, but uh, it's fun. It's certainly a bit dated. Um, I don't know if I saw it for the first time now, if I would say that it's a great film, but it was certainly, um, it is a cult classic. Uh, although to, to me, the term cult classic sort of implies that it did not do well financially initially. And then it found an audience afterwards and gremlins was successful on its initial run. Um, but it has kind of taken on a life of its own since its initial run and Gremlins 2 which was made in 1990 I believe um, kind of amped up the humor even more it's almost a parody of the first film and uh, you know some people say that it's even better than the first film it's different than the first film I wouldn't necessarily say it's better but it's not I wouldn't say it's worse either it's just a totally different type of animal um so it's impossible for me to grade gremlins or rate it on my one to 10 rating system now as an uh, objectively um but as far as its place in culture and the history of culture and its place in my life i would give it a solid seven um if you haven't seen gremlins you know, and you're in the 25 to 45-year-old range, definitely watch it, but I don't think it's going to have quite the power over you that it has in generations past. Definitely not a kid's movie. So, uh, yeah, tread lightly with that. Um, and again, I saw Shape of Water, which was uh, magnificent. Getting to see it again on the big screen. I'm probably going to see it again in the next week or two with another friend. Picked up on a couple little uh, Easter egg type things in it this time that I didn't see the first time. So that was cool. Um, the Another film I saw was a film called Wonder. And 
Wonder has actually been out for a couple months now. Um, uh, it was um, it was something that I kind of wanted to see, sort of, um, which a lot of the films on this podcast, uh, I think, are going to tend to to be that, especially in the next couple months. Uh, January and February are historically uh, rough, rough, uh, rough times to see movies in the theater. That's tends to be a dumping ground for a lot of um, projects that you know movie studios aren't super happy with. Um, it's hard to find a lot of good stuff to see in the theater, but um, Wonder is a fairly predictable yet still moving um, drama film. Um, you know, it stars uh, Jacob Tremblay, who's most well known for playing the young boy in the the Oscar-winning film Room that came out two years ago. And then Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson play his parents. Um, it's it's not a true story, but um, it's a, you know, it's a, um, it's a family drama about a family with a young boy who has a, you know, a cranial disorder. So he's, he's, um, he has scarring on his face. You know, and he's he's ten years old, so he's just he's been homeschooled, and then he's just entering public school for the first time in fifth grade, and kind of how that year goes. Um, it is fairly predictable, I and mean, you can imagine how it goes. Um, but it's 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 well acted. It's nice to see. It's nice to see Julia Roberts play a down to earth, just a regular person. Um, and it's nice to see Owen Wilson not playing a man child. I mean, although he, he plays a father and he's, he's a little bit of the man child, you know, buddy dad as well, where Julia Roberts character has to carry a lot of the heavy load of, of parenting. But, uh, it is nice to see, you know, I saw Owen Wilson in father figures a couple weeks ago, which was awful. And this is not an awful film. It's definitely a really, solid family film. Um, uh, the, the girl who plays the daughter, Isabella Vidovic, Vidovic, um, also, you know, 16 year old actress did a, did an excellent job as well. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of the, the TV series, Parenthood, I'd say that this is sort of along those lines, but you know, not, not quite as powerful, writing, but, uh, certainly a worthwhile film. Um, certainly worth renting on, you know, Redbox or watching it on Netflix when that shows up and it's done very well, um, in the box office, you know, it's, I think it looks like it had a, um, uh, let's see, it's, it, it had a, uh, $20 million budget, uh, <clears throat> and it's made almost 200 million. Um, so yeah, it's done well. Uh, yeah, but definitely worth, uh, worth a look if you're looking for a solid, uh, family film. Then I saw on New Year's Eve, Molly's Game, which is, uh, Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. Aaron Sorkin, uh, most notably known for his TV series, um, probably the most well-known being The West Wing, but he also did, uh, sports... Sports Night, 
I believe it was called. And then uh, <sighs> Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. And um, he wrote um, The Social Network that uh, uh, David Fincher directed a couple years ago. Um, I believe, I know he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay or Best Adapted Screenplay. I don't know if he won. And this, this film, because there were no opening credits, I didn't, I went into it knowing nothing about it other than the fact that it was Aaron Sorkin, his, you know, directorial debut, and that Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain were both in it. And they're both actors that I, I like a lot of their stuff. I, neither one are actors that I'll go see a movie just because they're in it. Um, but I was a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin's, you know, work on the West Wing. Um, he is similar to David Mamet in that his writing immediately has, you know, is a, a, immediately recognizable as his own, and he, it's it has a hyper realism to it, um, uh, which I think, I mean, you know. Uh, Aaron Sorkin's work, he he's famous for his walk and talks in his shows where people are walking very quickly and conveying a lot of information quickly. And there's not walk and talks in this, but in the opening scene has that sort of dialogue over, you know, it, it, it's giving someone's backstory or a chunk of the the main character Molly Bloom's backstory over a flashback in probably five minutes, but the fact that there's no opening credits, I had no idea that this was based on a true story um, based on uh, Molly Bloom's autobiography. Um, and my thought watching the whole film was, man, Aaron Sorkin does not know how to write believable human beings, um, which you know it turns out uh, these were. These are real people. Um, the situations, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Hollywoodized a little bit, but basically about a woman who uh, was doing, had a gambling ring and was being prosecuted by the FBI. Um, you know, it was, it was a very well-made film. I can't say that I really enjoyed it all that much, though, Uh my biggest problem is I never cared about Molly Bloom as portrayed by Jessica Chastain. Uh, most of Aaron Sorkin's characters uh, are, I don't know, have a distance to them, particularly female characters. Um, it, you know, my, my take on it is because uh, Aaron Sorkin typically writes women as, a bit cold and a bit uh, uh, abrasive. And certainly with the Molly Bloom character in this film, that was true. And usually the most passionate person in any work that he's doing is, is a man. And I would say that, you know, Idris Elba's character is, is that in this both of them did an excellent job acting, but um, I never once really connected with the character of Molly Bloom. Uh, I was like, yeah, she's being prosecuted. And after seeing everything that she was doing, I was like, yeah, that's she's getting kind of what, what not what she deserves, but 
you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but this is what happens when you run an illegal gambling ring. And I was never given a reason to feel like I should care about this at all. Um, and conversely, I didn't really believe why Idris Elba's character all of a sudden decided he needed to defend her because he was staunchly against it from the beginning and then became passionate about it. Um, I just never fully connected with it. Um, Michael Sarah has a pretty pivotal role in a bunch of it as an, a s- sort of a, a seedy Hollywood actor who gets involved in Molly Bloom's uh, gambling. And uh, Michael Sarah, unfortunately, was in my opinion, was completely miscast in this. Um, he's good at playing, you know, playing against type. He, he, he was the young son um, in Arrested Development and usually plays kind of, uh, you know, young, sweet kids. And he's, he's done a couple roles to play against that, but he, his character is supposed to be dangerous at one point in this. And I just don't believe Michael Sarah as being dangerous at all. So, um, I just, I did buy that. Um, I will say Kevin Costner has a very small on-screen role as Molly Bloom's father. Um, only in a few flashback scenes and then one present day, nah, two present day scenes. But there is one scene with him and Jessica Chastain that uh, I feel is the best acting I've ever seen Kevin Costner do in his entire career. So that was, that was certainly the high point for me. It was nice to see Kevin Costner give, given something really of substance to do. Uh, it's just over two hours, but it feels even longer than that. It's, you know, if you like, Courtroom drama is certainly worth a watch, but it's nothing exceptional. I, I really feel that Aaron Sorkin's work is far better suited to episodic television than to feature films. But, you know, hopefully he'll prove me wrong. Hopefully he'll make another feature and that'll be, uh, you know, that'll be amazing. And, um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what what lies in store from Aaron Sorkin. But, uh I would give Molly's game uh, probably a 6 out of a 10. I don't remember if I gave a numeric rating for Wonder, the movie I talked about before this, but I I would give Wonder a 6 out of a 10 as well. And then the last film that I saw, well, I I did see Star Wars, The Last Jedi again, but I'm not going to go into that anymore. But I did see Darkest Hour. And... I primarily, Darkest Hour was one of those movies I wanted to have seen. I wasn't super excited to see it, but it was one of those movies that I wanted to include on the podcast. Um, For those of you not familiar, uh, it's, in a nutshell, it's Gary Oldman in heavy prosthetics playing Darkest Hour, playing uh, Winston Churchill uh, in Darkest Hour, and it covers this time spanning uh, when he is first brought in as prime minister of England uh, during World War II and then up to the time that 
they make the decision that they will not have peace talks with Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, it's a political drama. It is a war drama, but I don't believe there's any warfare actually shown. There are some shots. No, nah, that's not true. There is one scene of uh, bombs being dropped, but there's no, you know, ground combat. Um, uh, the events of, uh, you know, Christopher, Christopher Nolan made the movie Dunkirk earlier this year, which I haven't seen, but uh, the events that took place in that film are talked about and depicted in this film as well, uh, which I wasn't aware of the civilian boats going to, you know, rescue the soldiers. Uh, but uh, I will say Gary Oldman gave a great performance and was, if not for his eyes, would have been completely unrecognizable under all the heavy prosthetics. He did look an incredible amount like Winston Churchill and had the body language down, uh, perfectly. Um, and I will also say as far as old age makeup and prosthetics, it's the best work I've ever seen done on film. He absolutely looked like a heavy set man in his late sixties, early seventies, he didn't look like Gary Oldman wearing old man fat suit. He looked like a heavyset man. Um, and the performance was excellent. But that's the best thing about this film. It was a very slow-moving uh, film. It's not you know, not a lot of action. And, um, you know, Winston Churchill his, historically wasn't a very important figure, but... I never really got the sense of him as a man, what, what drove him, what his particular peculiarities uh, uh, were all about. And um, yeah, and I was never fully invested in the film. Uh, I went, I'm a huge Gary Oldman fan and it was great to see him in that. And there is some Oscar talk. Uh, I don't think he is going to win. Um, I, it's definitely wasn't the best performance I've seen this year. It was an excellent performance by him, but every performance I've seen him give is excellent. He was in, even in the, um, mediocre film Hannibal, the, the sequel to silence of the lambs, uh, unrecognizable as Mason Verger. And he gave an excellent performance in that. And, um, so if you're a Gary Oldman fan, it's definitely worth seeing. If you're a history buff, I'd say, I would recommend it as well. Pretty much anyone else, I'd say it's an easy pass. I would give Darkest Hour a 5 out of 10. So that's the movies that I saw this past week. That's going to wrap up Season 1 of For the Love of Film podcast. Season 2 will be back uh, in the next week or so. Thank you.